this book had a lot of uh examples inside of it. I was trying to was principally about history. Look at the title, the sexuality of history. I was trying to trace history and give us all the was a querying of history. Querying means reading something queerly. That means looking at it through the um with queer thoughts and queer objectives in mind, trying to figure out if there's any signs of people being queer or queer people in it. So this is a querying of history. So it traced a lot of literary books from the beginning of time to the present moment. I'm exaggerating, but it was torture. Yeah, it was a torturous journey. Um, I didn't finish it, but I have highlights. Um, just a little, and we're going to try to figure out what I found interesting in the places that I, that I highlighted. Here we go, page twenty. In choosing the sapphic as the focus for a sexuality of history, and in deferring gender to the sub to the subtitle of this book. I mean to signal the value of moving female homoeroticism to the center of sexuality studies as an unmarked case. The paradigms encouraged by Focus is a very popular person. I see this name everywhere. I've seen it so much this week. Is this person dead? Yet. I don't know. I'm never sure the century that this person came into being definitely in the 20th century i don't know exactly when the paradigms encounter encouraged by Foucault, Foucault's elision of women and gender from the history of sexuality have long concerned feminist theorists and it does not take much research to see what shayla jeffrey has called male gay cultural forms still dominated what we're trying to what the person says here was trying to tell us what is going to come in the book, and the person wants the author wants to put um homoerotism in the center of sexual studies or sexuality studies, and so most of the book was about a lot a lot about sex because it was about erotism not not just complete not just entirely homosexuality but homoerotism female. Homoerotism, not even me. We didn't really speak about. It didn't speak about men. It was just focusing on the things that men. The only reason why men featured was the things that men wrote, especially in the past where women were not writing much. Um. So the things that men wrote about women having sex, like two women having sex, or how they distinguish characters having sex, or how in real life, like life history, how a woman would disguise and get married to another woman things like that that's what the book was about and I was trying to examine that and see how how much concern we should have about those so still talking about this the book um this project is guided by the conviction that gender must be theorized in tandem with sexuality in any project of queer history whether focused on women or on men So when Joan Scott modestly called what Joan Scott modestly called a useful category of analysis seems to me crucial 
so long as we are dealing with the human world as it as it has been as it has been rather than the world we might desire certainly in the 18th and and 17th century europe the idea of a gender free of a gender free anywhere is literary utopia even claims that the mind has no gender precisely because they needed to be advanced only on behalf of women as signs of gender's pervasive force this recognition does not mean clinging to gender to evoke a concern articulated by robin wigman among others it means recognizing that tom king it means recognizing with tom king that gender is itself a social relation obtaining only through its materialization as practice so everybody is saying that gender is something that we do not we are uh we're going to push past that and get into the book there was a lot on the introduction this person spoke as what i was not very happy reading this book i kept sighing um because the woman the author this susan lady she repeated not repeated per se but the explanation was always so long the paragraphs were long the words like i'm a lay reader you can't just throw all these words at me all at once it's not fair to my to my to my brain but i don't think the book was um it was not made considering lay readers in mind it was just made for maybe academic purposes and to be given to professors and psychologists people like that who have a lot of experience experiences dealing with sexuality and gender i don't think it was made for lay readers other books i've read have been easier not not dumb but easier to get through at least break down the paragraphs um the things that you're explaining explaining little sentences and make it more concise and sharp nobody cares about that we're not stupid but don't don't be excessively verbose um that female homoeroticism has been sidelined in the scholarship on sexual difference has been particularly troubling since in refined refined heteronormativity that scholarship ends up participating in the very process it aims to describe most historians of gender seem to agree that during the long period from the late 16th to the early 19th century as traditional arguments for hierarchy lost their effective force, gender relations were reshaped or at least intensified along polar polarities of difference to reconfigure and thereby sustain male supremacy. Okay. Um so to really be able to tell the difference between man and woman or the reason why that was enforced that the difference was enforced was to sustain male supremacy wow clap for history or people in history okay might have jumped to a conclusion there but 
that's something to think about. That's another um sort of Marxist thought where <laughs> let's just call it life thoughts where you when somebody makes you when somebody does something and you think it's solely for one reason or and that reason is bad or not particularly kind or unselfish. That's what that's what I just read to you. People emphasize gender roles and gender because they wanted to um retain male superiority or male supremacy. To clap for people. The penciled version of my findings suggests this page thirty seven suggests, however, that the significant attention to suffix subjects in particular countries at particular times and that the apparent inattention elsewhere is crucial to understanding the cultural work that suffix subjects may have performed. The suffix the suffix seems to have mattered most when specific societies or social spheres were in the verge of certain kinds of change or engaged in certain kinds of struggle. I will not consider it accidental, for example, that the European countries were invested in Suffolk representation at the turn of the 17th century, where colonialist powers in which women were also occurring, which women were also occurring political and cultural capital. What appears to be a late entry of German states into this conversation and what appears to be a waning of Suffolk representation in the 18th century Spain in contrast to a steady um, production in France and England have demanded scrutiny and speculation. Okay, that's, that's a nice thing to think about. That is it's usually in periods of change that things like that... Um, um gather more people or gain more followers people in times of change times of change that's when things happen um that's when the suffix movement or suffix representation gain more ground so in times of change imagine our own society right now the 21st century 2022 our lives right now I guess we shouldn't be surprised in how much um ground that's gained, especially since it has been around for the longest time and has been gaining a lot of followers. Or oh, people, let's not say followers I mean. In times of change. And in our own time we're already assured that change will always come at us really fast. As we breathe, things will be changing more tech tech we evolve, we evolve more things will come up so it's a permanent thing we'll see more changes and we'll see more um representations of other things coming up we shouldn't be surprised as martin vicinus has observed Sexuality studied, studies have been burdened with a disproportionate mandate to know for sure to provide evidence of sexual consummation, whereas heterosexuality is confirmed through a variety of diverse social formations. Even if we were to know what people really did in bed, and surely in most cases we never shall, 
where marriage is a compulsory institution, especially for women, and forcible sex all too commonplace. Heterosexual consummations prove nothing about affective affiliation or sexual desire. Mm. Further clear discursive lines often fail to demarcate the erotic from the merely affectional from the merely affectional, particularly at a time when certain understanding, understandings of sexual behavior, for example, equating sex with penetration, may locate some behaviors below the sexual radar screen. If I err on the side of inclusion, I do so as a, a gesture towards rebalancing critical tendencies. And when, when I term... A constellation of representations sapphic. I claim only its homoerotic potential. There's so many things involved. I think that's that's some of that. I hope I'm given the grace to Ah, uh, I guess I can't really make that prayer. I'm gonna say I'm giving the grace to pick books with easier language but there are also just some things some topics that the books that are written on them are just hard like somebody that has not cracked the code of communicating so like everybody hasn't done their own version of the book so i just have to and i don't have a choice but to read them if i want to know what i want to know this book is just one of those books one of the most frustrating problems for lesbian historiography historiography is the degree to which sapphic texts and their travels gets covered up. The intense production of sapphic discourse over two centuries leaves startling scant trace scantily startlingly scant trace of reproduction in the form of discussion, citation, review, or even inclusion in catalogues. Why the anonymity of many sapphic, sapphic writings bar deep investigation at the site of origin. This woman was complaining and talking about everything in, in what she calls the first chapter that should have that she should have called introduction. I was so annoyed yesterday. talking about instruction and she talks to us direct what is all these corners um <laughs> let's continue one of the most okay i've read that i've read that praise god moving on okay representations that attach the sapphic to cross-dressing a practice with economic and social as well as sexual motivations often render casual chains uncertain. Is sapphic inclination a motive for or a byproduct of passing as male? That's a good question. Is sapphic inclination a motive or a byproduct of passing as male? Inclination ultimately seems paramount. For example, in the story of the convicted female husband put to death at Monte and Day that Montague records in his ninth when it's in his fifteen eighty journal de voyage and that Green Blanche takes up in relation to twelfth night by Shakespeare. One of the 
several girls from the towns of Chomont who conspired to dress themselves as men and to live that way in the world. Um, marries another woman, but is then discovered and condemned to death. Montague underscores the inalterable the inalterability of Mary's inclination when he reports that the accused said she would rather die than go back to the condition of a girl. Hey Jesus, what was the condition of a girl in the fifteenth? Hey, <laughs> if somebody can say she rather die than go back to being a girl, I have to consider what was being a girl like in her time why occasionally and especially in orient um why occasionally and especially in orientalist accounts inclination is seen as simply the sign of a fixed disposition as in the case of witches described by alfazi and bodin bodin most texts follow montague's agnostic view in suggesting that certain women simply tend towards a deviation that is never clearly identified as one primarily of sexuality or primarily of gender so the reason why they started it was not primarily because of sexuality or primarily of gender what was wrong with being a girl in their time what could have been so wrong well we didn't have rights on its own is problematic um the dutch trial records of women like justin are likewise non-plus plus how to explain that one day without warning a wife named mike mike announces herself to the to be abraham and looks for a wife of her own <laughs> clearly the first explanatory framework that same sex desire can be transmitted through influence or contagion embodies the most fully universalizing threats thus alfazi's wives are not just inclined towards witches but seems to have been transformed by them that they keep returning to the witches who have in a sense infected them may be a particularly potent claim in an age of little understand little understood physical contagions all the more as alfazi describes the wives as feigning illness so that so they can be cured by sapphic witch, witchery sapphic contagion is often articulated as crossed national brantom suggests that italian women brought donna con donna to the to the French courts and spread the practice like a disease, just as other texts locate cities and countries in and beyond Europe. It's just, you know, how is this surprising when it can work as a contagion now? It can function as a contagion when it's like when you go to a place and you usually fire your eggs a certain way and then you teach somebody. Or you have eggs with somebody and you fight that way for them and they like it. They will fight their eggs that way now. That is the metaphor is it's very almost rude. I apologize, but I hope you get the idea of the contagion effect. So um 
The Italian remembered Donna Condena to the French court and spread the practice like a disease just as other texts locate cities and countries in and beyond Europe as carriers of traffic. <laughs> there was a disease. <laughs> as sometimes. <laughs> um, though Nicolet sees the bath themselves as a circumstantial. <laughs> you cannot kill yourself. No matter the circumstance. <laughs> Who knows that joke? <laughs> I was about to mess up the same word. Wow. Um, sees the bath themselves as a circumstantial setting where women also, however, are drawn to linger and to return. This notion that sapphic desire is in effect both contagious and habit-forming dramatizes the, po- the possibility that any woman might fall prey to it. Um, yes. Especially given the, the extent to which sapphic is displaced onto other societies, a contagion model emphasizes the sense of opportunity, whether benign or dangerous, that attends upon a real or perceived new global mobilization if this explanation is the least active of the four frameworks around i'm not going to get this wrong am i um there's a number there's a year year 1600 i'm trying to place the century i'm not very good at placing the centuries so 1,600 year is in what century? It's in the 16th century. Oh, girl. It's finally in your head. I made a mistake. When I was recording one other episode, it was the same year, 1,600. And I don't even know if that's how they say that year, 1,600. But I wanted to put it in a century. And I said it was in the 15th century. If you listen to that podcast episode, it's not the 15th century. I later went to research it. It is the 16th century. The 16th century is from um, 1501, 1501 to 1600. That's the whole of the 16th century. You know, then the 17th century <clears throat> starts from 1, 1601 to 1700. Ah, your baby's on fire. <laughs> Um. Uh, then, if this explanation is the least active of the four frameworks around 1600, 16th century, theories of contagion and influence will increase over the next century, along with models of inclination. Duh, that's what happened, especially in class-based configurations. While um, minoritizing and anatomical explanations will decline. Yeah, that's what happened. And circumstantial explanations be challenged. Yeah, that's what happened too. In the episteme of 1616th century, however, the idea of a universal sapphic potential seems to have been the least imaginable of the alternatives. Okay. Even across... Let's move on. Virtually all sapphic texts around 1600 rely on a dramatic of change most of the time unpredicted and unpredictable whether to the body to circumstance or to desire many of the representational 
um, figures that change that change through one specific starting quasi magical moment a wife puts on men's clothes and becomes a, a husband a girl's genitals reveal themselves as boyish to an unsuspecting family a lover taken for meal turns out in a moment of revelation to be a biological woman some texts emphasize the alteration of desire itself through some unexpected circumstance or logic a woman cleaves to another woman instead of to a man thus alteration coalescence qual- qual- around surprise emphasizing the unexpected character of the homoerotic which res- which radically becomes the figure of a social order beyond prediction or control moreover the particular cultural anxiety embedded in the sapphic is not so much about change as about the change that occurs that creates a temporal and epistemological feature, feature between what seems or was and what is. It's a small step from this rupture between past and present to the notion of the, the sapphic as a break from tradition tied to the new that is also the noun. What I got, there's a uh, there's anxiety about the spread of it, um, because the character is unexpected. Something happens, and then the person is attracted to women. That's what the texts say. Mm. And it spreads. And will keep spreading as it estimates as estimated. Give me a minute. I want to know. The book was written was published in twenty fourteen. Was it? It was the last published in twenty fourteen. The this particular copy. Mm. She was ar- she was the author was alive during the nineteen forties. I just I want to know when she wrote the book. So I've made the the projection into the future. You know, because she said to keep um, growing more and more so I want to know when she said that and how far back she said that because the LGBT keeps um, growing and gaining more people so let's move on there are many books in there you know she mentioned many books and the more recent she she got the more I could recognize the books like when she said Shakespeare and she said John Donne Ah, then I realized, okay, finally, I no longer feel like you're talking about my head, woman. Talk to me, talk to me directly. Um, I can't remember where we are. You know, I went to Ghana for the date. Uh, give me a minute, please. I apologize. Okay. On 4 August, 
I think they call it 1600. That just came to me. On 4 August 1600, the Chamberlain's men officially registered as As You Like It, the first of Shakespeare's comedies to play centrally with female sex, same-sex attraction, though not the first to flirt with it. The kind of passion that Rosaline or Ganymede stares in both Celia and Phoebe, doubling the canola canonizing love I like that because Shakespeare came up it was the one person that I knew in this book and I was very happy so I liked it and I wanted to share that so we're going to move on um I didn't die. I'm still here. I'm just trying to find where to read. Between 1590 and 1600, the Spanish poet and scholar Fray Melchor de la Sena, de la Sena produced his elaborate narrative poem El Sueno de la Viuda in which a widow who sleeps each night i didn't understand the story in which a widow who sleeps each night between a maid servant theodora and medulina finds herself directed in a dream to mount her husband mistakes the vernal theodora for the departed spouse and begins making love to the sleeping maid who had miraculous who then miraculously sprouts a penis after Theodora grows weary and tired from night after sleepless night of mandated performance, however, the two maids put an end to their mistress's sex life by substituting the more delicate and female Medulina for Theodora, duping the widow to believe that the maid servant's penis has disappeared. The triumphant maids figure out, unlike their contemporary, their contemporary picaros in outwitting their employer, and end up as a couple. Theodora, having impregnated Medulina, though she is still a woman. This sort of poetry, <laughs> do you understand? Theodora is a woman that sprouts a penis. She's still a woman, but she still manages to impregnate the other um servants. And like the this writer is a very powerful person. This sort of poetic ribaldry um appears in other golden age writings such as Senax seventeen ninety two, Alan Dos Domas. Um, where women try to have sex with one another without what the poet considers the right equipment. Soon after 1600, accounts of arrest for same-sex marriage begin, began to appear in Dutch trial record, records as Rudolf Decker and Lois de Van Pol described the initial instance. 
Joseph's wife and mother of four courted a young woman named Bethelmina Whale. Convinced Bethelmina that she was really a man, then extracted a promise of marriage from her. Extracted blessing. Extracted a, a promise of marriage from her and got her into bed. The couple married in Leiden on 8th March 1606, but in October, Justin was tried for sodomy and sent into exile in the first of several such persecutions in the Netherlands. So people said to get arrested at that time. This one I just mentioned because I saw John Don, and I like John John. Between 1590, I don't like, I just know him. 15, between 15... 97 and 1601 John Donne composes certainly Frank Sappho to Finelis a poem more graphic than Yard's Elegy and similar poems by Rosard or such later works as Andrew Marvel upon Appleton's house don't sapphic images love between women as founded on an idyllic similitude even as she mourns the unrequitedness of her desire so she's in love with another woman but no reciprocity involved in seeking their deepest in their deeper logic then it is useful to remember that intimacies alleged innocence were often rewritten in sexual terms as a corporeal lexicon of intimacy pulled the chase towards the erotic even as an idealizing lexicon pulled the erotic towards the chase when for example the baba cheating tombstone aims to unite those whose bodies death would sever and whose souls in heaven now impress we face the kind of language that as alan bray among others had argued can be read both as asserting chastity or as rejecting it indeed when texts take the trouble to use words such as chaste and innocent to describe intimate relations we can infer at least an anxiety of interpretation if not a defensive or ironic stance so you can decide to read a piece of literature that has been deemed chaste and you may find something that is not chaste that actually means um something erotic people have argued where like what is the basis of interpretation for literary texts so I guess we just read according to the theories that we've come up with using the different tools that we've come up with to analyze text. And this is a querying of history. Virtually all sapphic texts around 1600 rely on a dramatic or dynamic of change. Most of the time, unpredicted and unpredictable. We've read that. Then it moves on to um, the chapters where 
um, they focused on the sapphic female sapphic the female sapphic sapphic is already female sapphic from 1565 to 1630 and that's what we read the 16 or the people before and after that came up with stories all the things that i've been reading they have just been in the 1600s then um the next chapter i was interested in was the rise of the novel in 18th century well between the 17th to the 18th century so that's where content is going to come out from now Reading the novel as a sapphic story helps to address a gender gap in traditional lineages that herald early works. Feminist critics have argued argued not only that, um, that this period lineage erases the single contributions of women of works by and about women, but that the standard genealogy effaces the novel's pioneering de- deployment of female voices and interiority, and thus offers little help, help in explaining forms and functions central to the novel of and beyond the 18th century. I am not, of course, denying the continued presence of male-centered novels from Lazarillo to whether to Atala or anti-domestic plots from Crusoe to Les Lysons Dangerous, it's not English, to Frankenstein or anti-realist f- fictions of the kind that Renevas Aravanudan elucidates in Enlightenment Orientalism. But the sapphic history of the novel which is necessarily a gendered history, illuminates the domestic novel's enabling conditions. <clears throat> its deployment of narrations and na- narrators and narratives, its persistent struggles with tendencies and the ways in which its complex negotiations <clears throat> excuse me. Its complex negotiations of same-sex desire challenge the heteronormative story that the rise of the novel conventionally presumes. Um, background. Rise of the novel in the 17th and 18th century. Um, people got bored. People, got, people had money. The middle class grew. People were able to stay at home, like the women at least. And people got bored. And they said to write, and we had paper, so people said to write. And what I was taught, or what I usually find on the internet, is Robinson Crusoe. But in this book, there are so many names that just come out of nowhere. With this book, I'm quite in over my head, like a lot. I will need a simpler book to read before I'm able to really understand everything that went on inside this book but they just said that the the rise of the novel during that time there are not many writers there you know in society at the time and other factors but it um it's just it proves that it's harder to really figure out um the sapphic story because there are just not that many um 
I'm going to stop here. There are just two left, but I'm going to stop here. I don't feel like I did enough work, but this is what I was capable of with this book. And I I couldn't read it fast, so I couldn't even finish. And I'm going to stop here. I hope you learned one or two things about writings and sapphic history. Well, I know that at least I know when 1600, what century falls on that. So there's that. I will stop you. Enjoy your day. Bye.